Hi, everyone. I'm Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of scrambling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for a family member or a friend, your partner, maybe even your neighbor? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we hear from people just like you who share caregiving stories from the field, how you cope, what you've learned, and how care has changed your life. We also hear from professionals in the field of aging and people using media to creatively address major health issues. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Hector De La Torre is executive director of the Transamerica Center for Health Studies, a nonprofit organization focused on helping consumers and businesses navigate the healthcare landscape. The center just released its first ever in-depth survey of over 3,000 non-professional family caregivers in the United States. The survey report is titled The Many Faces of Caregivers: A Close-Up Look at Caregiving and Its Impacts. Hector De La Torre joins us today from Los Angeles, California to share his insights on the survey's findings and to share a bit about caregiving in his own family. Hector De La Torre, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Thank you for having me. So before coming to the Center for Health Studies, I know you worked in the private and the public sector, including serving for six years as state assembly member for California's 50th congressional district. Tell us a bit more about your background and why you took on this position as executive director at the Center for Health Studies. I understand it's relatively new. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's only uh, four years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I you know, was the first hire, so mm-hmm. I helped to get it off the ground. The attraction for me was that it felt like public service. It felt like what I had done in the legislature where I very much focused on health care. I was right out of the, the gate in the legislature. I was chairman of the uh, Budget Subcommittee on Health and Human Services. So mm-hmm. I got thrown into the deep end of the pool and really dug into health care-related issues uh, when I was there. Wrote the legislation banning rescissions, uh, the retroactive cancellation of health insurance policies mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. Wrote legislation on uh, requiring maternity services be included in all health care plans. Wrote legislation to support our children's hospitals in, in California, uh, among other things. And, and so I just really became focused on health care issues. So when I left the legislature because of term limits, this opportunity presented itself to to run a national nonprofit that um, was focused on healthcare and and was focused on educating, uh, as you said, consumers and employers about health coverage, the health insurance stuff, and health and wellness, um, because that that absolutely is part and parcel. We want to empower people to make their own decisions. We don't. We're neutral. We're not partisan. And so, you know, we just want people to have the best information in front of them to make decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. I think caregivers are constantly in need of information, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, So there have been a few caregiver studies out there. The biggest, most notable one, which I'm sure you're familiar with, was the AARP, um, National Alliance for Caregiving, 2015 Caregiving in the U.S., study. The one that you've put out, uh, your organization has put out, is quite impressive. It's in-depth. It's really massive. It's almost 300 pages. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) there are so many things we could talk about in the survey, but first let's talk about why it was undertaken and how the survey was conducted. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the methodology. 
Well, it's it's over 3,000 caregivers nationwide, so it's a very large scope. Uh, we wanted to, to to be as inclusive and thorough in the re- caregivers that we reached out to. It's also very much focused on the caregiver. Many times, uh, in as we saw as we looked into the other reports that are out there, and the AARP one is fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a lot of focus on the care recipient, but we were really focused on the caregiver particularly the non-professional caregiver, the caregiver who is doing it for a family member, a friend, a neighbor, et cetera, not, and, and not necessarily getting paid for it. In fact, less than 20% of the caregivers were getting compensation in any way mm-hmm. for doing the caregiving. So that was really the focus was looking at the burdens that caregivers are facing if they are working outside of the home, which many of them were, uh, over half of them were in, uh, well, actually 60% were working outside of the home in some way. So they're they're juggling their job and the caregiving uh, obligations. And so that really, uh, I thought, was important for us to cover. Mm-hmm. And I know you personally didn't conduct the survey, but did any examples of stories come forward that you heard about that stuck with you? Well, Harris Poll conducts all of our surveys, so uh, you're right. Okay. We, we didn't conduct it. We helped shape it with the questions, mm-hmm. but they actually they're, they're a professional survey firm, so we hand it off to them to do the actual survey work to make sure it's as uh, well done as possible. And, and then we obviously get the report the, the report back and, and put that out to the public. Sure. I was fascinated by so many of the findings that probably wouldn't surprise most people who listen to this show. Um, 75% of caregivers do not receive any form of financial assistance or payment for their work. 55% say their own health is taking a backseat to the health of the care recipient. 69% gave little or no thought to their own financial situation when deciding to become a caregiver. One thing stuck out here, suggesting that some people decide and some don't <laughs> you become caregivers. I think yeah, a most, lot of most us, of them, it's kind of thrust upon them. It's thrust them, upon right? them, exactly. So, you know, on that note, the voluntary versus non-voluntary caregiving, why is that distinction important? You can speak to that. Well, we had, we had two major distinctions among mm-hmm. caregivers uh, besides, you know, the usual uh, demographic splits was um, between uh, voluntary and non-voluntary, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was, again, if it's thrust upon you, you know, someone near to you, a loved one, has a medical condition or has something that, that requires them to get support, then it's kind of all hands on deck, right? Somebody right. has to step up and, right. and help that person out. And some in some cases, there's no one else. Uh, and so that would be the non-voluntary. And then the voluntary would be, you know, the same circumstances, but with a myriad of options, someone in the family or, or a neighbor, et cetera, just says, you know, I'll help this person out and, and look after them because I care for them. And then the other distinction was between primary and non-primary, which uh-huh. is similar. The, the self-identified primary caregivers are, as it implies, they may get help from other people, but for the most part, they're the ones who are responsible for the care recipient. Uh, and non-primary would be the folks who help out occasionally. Right. And so we wanted to break out those distinctions. And in many cases, we saw 
some unique results. Obviously, the burden is much heavier on the primary caregivers. Mm -hmm. I thought also it was interesting that your survey reinforced what I've been reading about the increase in the number of millennials who are caring for a family member. That that really, really surprised us. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. uh, Yes, because you you assume it's a Gen X, baby boomer, mature grouping that Mm -hmm. is doing most of this. But in fact, over 20% were millennials when they're caring for parents, grandparents, loved ones, etc. Gen Xers tend to be, as you would expect, sandwich generation. It's either Mm -hmm. a child who has some kind of long-term care need or a parent. Baby boomers tends to be spouses and not necessarily children or right. uh, or grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And then matures is almost exclusively spouses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a generation older than baby boomers who, you know, are kind of looking out for each other in, right. in a couple situation or conceivably a neighbor or other relative. Right. And I should think that the long-term financial impact is really going to hit hard on the millennials. As well. Yes. Uh, well, you know, across the board, the financial implications are, you know, the caregivers are spending $150 per month median out of pocket right. to cover expenses for their care recipients. So just, you know, in a very direct way, they're supporting them. And only 56% of caregivers self-describe their financial well-being as excellent or good. So almost half are not doing that well. In fact, 43% cited just getting by as a current financial priority. And obviously, you know, all of this would weigh heavily on younger caregivers, millennial caregivers who are at the lower end of the income scale to begin with. And in terms of retirement preparation, caregivers have saved 68,000. That's the estimated median in total household retirement accounts. That's not a lot. And they're having to care for someone and having to sacrifice in their day-to-day work that would reduce their income as well. Mm -hmm. I thought it was also interesting, again, not surprising, that 80% would like more information on one or more topics related to caregiving, which speaks to the reality. I think that most of us feel like we're just flying blind and we don't (laughs) really know what we're doing. Yeah, in in many cases, it's in isolation. That's a very, very good point. Um, You know, one of the questions we asked was about preparation for doing medical or nursing-related tasks. And among the caregivers who perform those tasks, only 54% say they learned these tasks from uh, hospital or doctor's office personnel, which means 46% (laughs) are winging it. Right. Uh, And that's not a good thing for medical or nursing-related tasks. Right. And yet that percentage of Americans who are supporting the healthcare system through unpaid care, the country is really dependent on that group of individuals, that collective yeah. group. Yeah. An- an- another related to that is, is how long the caregivers have been doing their mm-hmm. caregiving. 74% have been providing care for more than one year. Yeah. And 27% over a quarter, have been providing care for more than five years, which is really, really significant. As you can imagine, you know, folks who are day in, day out, juggling all of this, having the financial stress, having the physical stress of doing it for over five years, um, that is a real difficult challenge for caregivers. Yeah. And as you said, so many are doing it in isolation and often without help from siblings or because they're only children or just don't have other families, family members. Yeah. So what's your view on why we have so many support services for new mothers 
and we don't we have so few support services and resources for caregivers. And, and this gets to why we did the survey in the mm-hmm. first place, uh, mm-hmm. which is we both Catherine Collinson, who heads up the Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies, and myself in the health studies, we thought that caregiving is completely below the radar, that society doesn't appreciate what is taking place throughout the United States mm-hmm. with people stepping in and providing this care and carrying, in many cases, carrying the burden by themselves. And it's extremely difficult. In our survey, 55% of caregivers said their caregiving duties leave them physically or emotionally exhausted. Mm-hmm. And 54% said their duties leave them feeling completely overwhelmed. That is a terrible burden to put on caregivers, and then we double it by leaving them in isolation and not making it easier for them by providing those things that they say they would like, whether it's in financial assistance, whether it's training on medical things, or you know, personal stress management or other personal coping mechanisms that can help them on a day-to-day basis. These are all the things that they're asking for in our survey. Mm-hmm. Well, Hector, you held elected office for many years, so you have the inside view. What is your view of the disconnect between public officials and average citizens in terms of the attention that is needed and resources that is needed for caregivers? What's it going to take for... Well, I, I think, you know, as a former elected official, mm-hmm. you, you tend to think of these issues in terms of institutions. So Mm -hmm. we have nursing homes, we have long-term care facilities, maybe assisted living or or something that's a little lighter touch than a nursing home, and then we leave it alone. The rest of it is, you know, there's a real bias, I think, in the United States and maybe in other places that this is just a family issue. Right. Uh, let, Let the families take care of their sick or, you know, the folks who need that help, and it's not our business. Well, our polling, our survey work here shows what a difficult situation we're putting these folks in. And we know because the caregivers are doing this service for us that it's cheaper and easier to have this for society uh, than the cost of long-term care. So they are doing everyone a favor by taking on this burden. And so I think we owe it to them to help them in their day-to-day with the things that they're asking for, for that, those supports that they're asking for. They're not saying, relieve me of this burden. They're saying, give us some help in these various ways, financial, personal support, training, and personal emotional support as well. And those are all things that I think we can do. And there are a lot of those kinds of resources. So part of it is making those public and educating the public. But we also need to make sure that we have these services throughout the country, not just in some places. Mm -hmm. I found it very interesting that very few people were familiar with Family and Medical Leave Act. Yes. That was surprising. A surprisingly low number. We at the Transamerica Center for Health Studies do an annual health survey of consumers and employers, and we find that there as well, that there are many health-related programs that are fairly well-known mm-hmm. and have been around for a while that consumers don't know about. So it's surprising on the one hand, and yet not. I mean, the Family Medical Leave Act has been around since the 90s, so you would think that more people knew about it, particularly if they were in a caregiving situation. But overall, we also found that employees were very unaware of programs that their employer offered for caregivers Hmm. above and beyond FMLA. So that is another thing that 
we're going to be promoting and pushing, which is for employers to better communicate those kinds of programs with their employees. Right. I sort of feel like in this country, the capitalist nature of our country, it's really going to start sinking in when businesses get it. Yeah. And and we know that it's happening right now, right. which is, in, again, in our survey, among those that are currently employed or, or who have been employed during their time as caregivers, 76% have made some kind of adjustment to their employment as a result of their caregiving duties, 76%. Mm-hmm. That's massive. And, and this can yeah. range from using vacation and sick days to do caregiving to taking on fewer hours or responsibilities. 26% did that, yeah. to quitting their jobs entirely or retiring, 14%. So that 40%, just in those two numbers, uh, taking on fewer hours or responsibilities or quitting their jobs or retiring, that's 40% of this group that is not maximizing their economic contribution because of caregiving from the perspective that you just cited, mm-hmm. uh, which is their contribution to their job. Right. And so that is a significant loss of human capital to have these folks either reduce or step out of the workflow of mm-hmm. this country. And that hurts us. It hurts us all economically. Yeah. Let's talk about the caregivers in your family. Who are they and how do they navigate the system? Well, it was me. My father had heart issues Mm -hmm. for several years, and I was the one who took him to all his medical appointments, who, you know, came up with a simplified mechanism for his medications, Mm -hmm. because using the containers that you get from the pharmacy, just, he was taking a lot of pills, and it was confusing, and, uh, and he had to take some in the morning, some at night, and he didn't like the Monday through Friday, or whatever it is. The mm-hmm. one with the days, the little pills. Oh, the right. <laughs> he didn't like that. So I had to come up with a completely new way, simplified way of doing that for him and, and monitoring it because even then sometimes he'd get confused or miss out on something. So it was a constant watching over of those things and you know making sure he was eating right because if he weren't paying attention, he would go to fast food or things that he shouldn't be eating mm-hmm. that weren't good for him. And so uh, it was just a regular need. And my brother was in Texas and we're in California and and my sister wasn't very helpful. So it came down to me. Mm. Where are you in the birth order? (laughs) I'm the youngest. Okay. And is your dad still living? No, he passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. At the time, was he living in his home or with you? Or where was he living? Both. Okay. Uh, He kind of went back and forth during that time. So, you know, obviously when he was in the house, it was much more intensive. But it was a a lot. He was hospitalized several times over those years. And, you know, I was there, you know, spending the night in the hospital many of those nights. How did you manage the stress? I just juggled. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sucked it up, huh? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I had my laptop with me in the hospital uh, when, when he was hospitalized. If I had to spend the day with him doing appointments and whatnot, I would be on my smartphone sending emails and texts and trying to continue to manage my work life while... I, the way I treated it was almost like if I was traveling for work. You Interesting. Know, you're yeah. out of the office right. and you're juggling that plus yeah. uh, whatever you're doing on your business travel. Uh-huh. That was the way I, I kind of treated it. Uh, uh-huh. that, that that day or those days I was traveling for business. Did you feel like you had emotional support? 
Well, you know, I have my family, my wife and kids. So, uh-huh. um, okay. So that was very good. But, yeah. you know, fortunately, you know, my wife and kids are all good shape. And mm-hmm. I can't imagine a situation, sandwich generation situation, where you have someone taking care of uh, a parent or grandparent and a child who has some kind of caregiving need. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, I, I felt like I... I was fortunate in that way that I, you know, I had that support at home and, you know, it was just me and him. Mm -hmm. And did your wife have any care issues or did she care for anyone other than your kids? Um, No. no, Okay. Again, we live in such a mobile society. Mm -hmm. Um, Her parents aren't in California either. So in many cases, that's what it is. It's, It's who is nearest. Yeah. Particularly now with people kind of spread all over the country and the world. Uh, It sometimes just falls on the person who's nearby. Yeah. When you were caring for your dad during that period, were you still in office or were you working at Transamerica? It started uh, (laughs) at the end of my time in office. Uh, Uh But again, I had term limits, so I knew it was going to end. Okay. You know, so many people have to think about, okay, should I tell my boss? Should I not tell my boss? Well, you know, yes, and, and we saw that in our survey as well. We asked about whether they had told their coworkers. And interestingly, most of the time, just slightly more than half told their boss, but much less than that told their coworkers. <laughs> Well, that's very interesting. That's really surprising. I noticed that too. I work actually part time. Uh And we don't really talk about it. I did find out that a friend of mine who I work with cares for a husband and her father in law. But yeah, it's it's shocking to me, quite honestly. Well, and, And back to the question of sacrifice and what adjustments people have made. 28% of our caregivers in our survey have experienced adverse actions taken by their employers as a result of their caregiving responsibilities. So clearly there's a fear of telling people at work lest they have some adverse action taken against them. And among that 28%, the lion's share were were millennials. Wow. That I didn't know. I'm looking at the key highlights page where you say type of adverse actions include being given less attractive assignments, Mm -hmm. 10%, being written up or admonished. How awful. 8% passed, (laughs) sorry, a little editorializing, passed passed over for a promotion, fired, forcibly had hours or duties reduced or been discriminated against. Yes. That's a lot of adverse activity. It's happening. It's out there. you you can really understand why folks would be reluctant to to share. And again, it gets back to the solitary nature of caregiving. I'm going to take it even further and say that it might give listeners a better understanding of why millennials are so into negotiating for their jobs. And that's something that I think is kind of different for that generation. They're certainly pushing, I think, a little harder than my generation did for flexibility. Yes. yes. Yeah, and, and, you know, they tend to be, in this case, kind of uh, on the lower end of the scale of the pay and seniority scale. So they would be more susceptible to having those adverse actions taken yeah, against them. Yeah, exactly. So just to get back to your situation for a moment, uh, I'd love to know what lessons you learned about caregiving and how you think it changed you. Well, you know, you're kind of in the middle of your career. You're focused on your professional life and your family, meaning, you know, my wife and kids. Mm-hmm. and you know, kind of out of the blue, my dad's health took a turn for the worse. And so I don't know that I was ready for it. It just happened. So Mm -hmm. I very much kind of took it on, but it wasn't something that I expected. My parents are divorced, so Mm -hmm. he was alone. So uh, I just knew that someone had to do it. Yeah. And how do you think it changed you? Um, 
Well, it gave me obviously more uh, sympathy for the heavy burden that caregivers and, and he was, you know, ambulatory and, mm-hmm. and aware and, and whatnot. So uh, I didn't even have to do a lot of the physical support that many caregivers have to do. So I was fortunate in that respect. But it gave me, you know, a lot of understanding and sympathy for caregivers who have an even harder burden. Mm-hmm. And it really gave me an appreciation for efficiency <laughs> because, <laughs> I was, because I was juggling, you know, my job and these other responsibilities. I wanted to, you know, when I went to the, when I took him to the doctor, I wanted to make sure we were in and out um, <laughs> right. uh, and not sitting around waiting rooms and that right. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really gives you an appreciation for the medical care and the other s- services that the care recipient needs and having that go as smoothly as possible and as efficiently as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in many cases, they don't care. Uh, yeah. So time is a really valuable commodity. It isn't just you know the quality of care. It's also respecting the time of the caregiver and the care recipient. And I think in many cases, that doesn't happen. And yet, for so many caregivers, the experience of time shifts so dramatically. I know that when I was caring for my mom, and just spending time with her, it's just like time stood still. It, yeah. Your yeah. whole sense of time changes radically. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much to do, and you're kind of uh, apart right. from uh, the normal routines, etc., that it's almost like a parallel life. I was just going to say that. You're in a parallel universe. <laughs> and yet, when I make a point of spending time with my mom, who's 88 mm-hmm. and lives with my sister, when I spend time with her, it's almost like everything else just falls away. It's also kind of grounding in a way and liberating. Yes, um. yes. And, and, and you know, you, uh, obviously, and, and we saw this in our survey, over 90% of caregivers, you know, their number one thing is to provide a good quality of life for the person that they care for. Yeah. And they like helping and enjoy spending time with the care recipient. And so that's a very wonderful <laughs> result from this survey. Yeah. So what do you want listeners to know about the survey, uh, other than what we've talked about? What do you want them to take away from it? Well, those burdens, uh, mm-hmm. I think, are the most important thing that caregivers kind of, because they're in that parallel universe that is completely other focused, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. completely centered on the recipient and their needs, that it's very difficult to think of yourself during that time. And so uh, the thing that really gave me pause in terms of that relationship and, and the burden is those two figures that I cited, 55% who say that it leaves them physically or emotionally exhausted, and 54% that say their duties leave them feeling completely overwhelmed. And uh, another figure that I didn't cite is that one in six caregivers said that their general health had gotten worse or declined since becoming a caregiver. Clearly, those things are connected. And so that's my big takeaway here is if we're isolating these caregivers and they're doing all of this work and are being completely focused on the recipient, the worst outcome would be for the caregiver to have medical problems themselves or or get sick or deteriorate uh, because then, (laughs) you know, what happens in that situation, right? You've got a caregiver recipient who has those needs and then the caregiver has has needs as well. And if it's a situation where they're the only caregiver, well, they're out of luck. That would be a, just the worst outcome. Yeah, and I think I've read somewhere that caregivers actually many die sooner than their charges. 
Yeah, and, well, and and we all have anecdotes right. uh, of that. Um, I just a couple of weeks ago heard uh, about a caregiver, friend of the family, mm-hmm. who was caring. It was the spouse's older a couple, mm-hmm. and the wife who was caring for her husband who had uh, Alzheimer's and and some medical issues. She had a stroke and passed away. Yeah, and so now what happens with her husband? So it, it is. It's heartbreaking. And again, getting back to kind of the positive aspect of this, is mm-hmm. our charge is to find those supports through the nonprofit sector, government, wherever it can help. But we really need to start talking about this, mm-hmm. making it a public conversation, and then finding those resources that caregivers say that they need. Mm-hmm. Will you be doing advocacy work in terms of going to these elected officials who many cases you probably know by now with this survey? <laughs> we, we don't do advocacy because okay. we're nonpartisan, but, but we are coming out with a caregiver guide that is informed by the things that the caregiver said they needed, Great. which we will release at the end of October in time for Great. National Caregiver Month. Perfect. So there is a follow-up here that will be coming out very soon, and we will share that with legislators uh, across the country to make sure that they see, hey, this is what caregivers say they need. These are the resources we've identified. You can do something similar in your state. Let's have this public conversation. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I wanted to give you the opportunity to offer any last thoughts. Well, I, I appreciate that you do this, that you have this podcast, because the daily lives and duties of caregivers, their, their precarious employment situation, the negative financial implications that they see, and the health effects of being a caregiver, these are all things that we need to be cognizant of. You know, our survey was just a way to kind of mirror what's out there and have a reason to talk about it and, and work with folks like the AARP mm-hmm. and others to raise the profile mm-hmm. of what is taking place in houses and apartments all across the country. Hector De La Torre, he's the executive director of the Transamerica Center for Health Studies located in Los Angeles, California. It's a nonprofit that is focused on helping consumers and businesses navigate the healthcare landscape. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to the Center for Health Studies. It's a research arm of the Transamerica Institute, and we'll also have a direct link to the study, which we've been talking about, titled The Many Faces of Caregivers, a close-up look at caregiving and its impacts. Hector, thank you so much for your work and for being on the podcast. It's really been great talking with you. It's been wonderful to be here. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends. And if you're so inclined, go to agewise.com and subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. The Agewise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.